seed-based research, and they're discussed in the, the paper in the book. Um, but um, I just thought I'd, I'd highlight a, a few of them. We're going to talk about perennial ryegrass resistance um, as opposed to annual ryegrass in the back. Um, and I'll also touch on some nodulation work on clovers and um, some, maybe some soil-borne diseases. So with perennial ryegrass, um, most of the time it's really hard to get it to persist. And um, I guess it, you know, it's not very deep-rooted, so it struggles to survive over that summer, and then a lot of your insect pests sort of get stuck into it. So you, you kind of get this sort of pretty much over time, you know, you can be lucky for it to last sort of five years before you're starting to get a whole lot of weeds coming into it. So with um, perennial ryegrass, one of the secrets of getting that stand to survive is, um, is to allow it to be able to set seed and for those seedlings to um, recruit. And a lot of farmers will sort of say, um, you know, that they can't get the newer varieties of uh, perennial ryegrass to persist. Um, and so they'll go back to the Victorian um, green ryegrass because they believe that is something that will um, give them a, a better stand. Um, and there is some sort of truth in that. Um, it's because of, um, I guess, one of the things with Victorian ryegrass is that it probably has a longer flowering period and a lot of these newer cultivars that are coming out that they've been sort of bred to have um, a shorter flowering time so you can harvest them a lot more quickly than you um, survive. Um, for longer than five years. So one of the groups that I worked with was with the South um, West Pine Land Group, um, based over near uh, sort of south of Hamilton. So they're in quite high rainfall, you know, 650 mils up to about 800 mil rainfall. And you think they can't get rid of ryegrass to persist there, then you know, where can get it to persist? Um, but one of the things that they did um, is that it followed on from some work that Hamilton um, Pastoral Veterinary Institute did, um, uh, Raquel Waller and Andrew Saul, uh, where they mapped out um, this technique of trying to get um, perennial ryegrass to persist. So they were sort of following through tillers and, and seeing what survival that they had. Um, and then they came up with the idea that, you know, these tillers weren't surviving. Um, there was very little tillers um, surviving over the summer and that they were better to um, try and do seeding recruitment. So they came up with a method of seeding recruitment and this group sort of played around with it to make it a bit more um, user-friendly. So what it involved was um, spelling, um, strategic spelling of the party to allow that perennial ryegrass to set seed. So Avic had used um, the Victorian perennial ryegrass in this group, they were, they were using a method with Avalon um, perennial ryegrass. Oops. Uh, so spelling, spelling it to allow um, the ryegrass to set seed. Um, and then what they were doing is that rather than letting that seed falling around some um, weld mesh over the paddock, so that that ripened seed, they wanted to get it on the ground really quickly rather than letting that sort of pasture sit there until January without not being able to graze it. So they're just trying to sort of speed up the technique. Um, then what you'd normally do is graze down all that, that trash and get ready for the autumn break. And then they just spell it at the autumn break to allow some of those seeds to anchor down. Uh, so what they sort of found is um, the following year after doing the technique, 
Um, so the control is just usually, you know, what they, their normal practice. They've been raising during that perennial, what well, that perennial ryegrass was um, producing, um, running up to head, versus the treatment where they'll do the strategic spelling. So they have quite a difference in um, seedling um, counts um, um, after the autumn break, um, showing that it, you know that some of those plants obviously been established. Um, and the change, there's also a change there in September showing you um, how you know, they virtually got double the premier eyegrass within that pasture. So it worked really quite well. Um, so that was something that I, I wanted to share with you. And this is just uh, this is a, bit, a picture um, taken at one of the field days in, in May um, of the, the control paddock um, versus the strategic cell paddock. You can see how better the ryegrass looks. Of course, this one um, being, I suppose, for the field day, they, they had spelled the pasture. But it, it was, I guess, a way of potentially you being able to get some of these newer varieties from your ryegrass to persist um, by um, allowing them to set seed and um, uh, getting that seedling recruitment um, in the autumn. Um, it's not a technique that you do every year. You perhaps do it when you've got lots of feed available. Um, and you might do it once the stand's starting to uh, diminish a little bit, so it might be something you, you might do strategically on a, on a couple of paddocks um, once every three years or something like that. So that's sort of talked about in the um, trial results booklet. The other um, interesting work that I wanted to talk about was an undulation survey uh, that Belinda Hackney did um, across, mainly across New South Wales, but also in um, other parts of um, some of Victoria and South Australia. And um, you might have um, seen some of this work, but I thought it was important to just sort of show, show you, just in case you haven't. Um, so they sampled uh, 240 paddocks. Um, they go into a paddock where there was clover, so it wouldn't have to just be sub-clover, uh, any sort of pasture legume. Um, they dig up 15 plants and then um, store the nodules. And what they found, that they were quite horrified to find that um, that the majority of the paddocks had inadequate nodulation. Uh, so the average nodulation score was two out of eight, and four is considered um, to be adequate. So when we talk about a score of four, we're talking about maybe 21 little small little nodules, and um, or three sort of big ones to be able to provide that nitrogen that your um, paddocks need. And 20% of paddocks have no nodules. So there was clover within the paddock that was growing quite happily, but it just wasn't modulated. Um, and so we've got to think about that critical role of why we have pasture legumes um, uh, within our pastures. Um, and it's really about trying to get that nitrogen. Um, because if these um, plants aren't, uh, they aren't modulated, they're not fixing nitrogen. And if they're not fixing nitrogen, they've got high requirements for nitrogen um, these clover plants, it means that they're going to take the nitrogen from somewhere else. So they'll be taking it from the soil mineral egg um, pool, they'll be taking it away from the grasses. Um, so the reasons um, for inadequate modulation, the primary reason that they came up with was soil acidity. But often a lot of your legumes, they might have tolerance of soil acidity, but their rhizobia don't. So the optimum um, I guess um, soil pH and calcium chloride for your clovers is usually sort of at least sort of five and a half. Um, 
50% of the paddocks had less, had the pH less than five, um, and would, that, would, that would impact um, on the subclover uh, rosavia group. And 95% of the paddocks had a soil pH that would have impacted on um, um, the aluminium group that um, you use for lucent, because lucent is more sensitive, the, the rosavia for lucent is much more sensitive to, um, al um, to soil acidity. The other things that they found, particularly in New South Wales, um, in the regions that they um, sampled from, they had huge um, sulfur disease, but um, um, certainly with MAP being used and um, DAP, not the same amount of sulfur that's going on the paddocks. Phosphorus was generally um, not too bad, and molybdenum, which is something that's also very much needed for um, nitrogen fixation, was only used by 2% of um, growers that were um, surveyed. The other thing that, um, that I, I wanted to point out to you today, the other thing that they thought that was going on, uh, particularly through the cropping zone, um, was herbicide residues um, impacting on nitrogen. And this is just a slide from some work that's done in um, GAF WA. And it's showing that uh, trisulfuron, which is one of those root B herbicides, uh, and just showing how um, sensitive um, subclover is some of these cropping herbicides that we use. Uh, so this is a control of the nodules, and that's only after 80 days. So you're starting to get, after a couple of weeks, you're starting to get nodules forming. Um, and this is um, one of 100,000 of the rate. And we're starting to sort of see an impact on uh, nodulation. Um, and we're starting to see these sort of quite, they call them shiny roots. They don't you get a lot, um, these herbicides seem to impact on the root growth and the root volume um, and the soil doesn't seem to cling to the soils because they're sort of so shiny so you don't get that infection um, process happening with the rhizobia or the nodulation. So um, the, I guess the residual herbicides that they did sort of point the finger at through their survey work that they thought was having an effect on nodulation uh, with the group B. Um, Herbicides, the sulfur and ureas. The other ones that they pointed to the were Lotrol um, and Secura. Um, yeah, I just wanted to highlight here um, that the breakdown of these um, herbicides is also due to chemical degradation, which is um, affected by soil. The microbes um, working, you obviously need rainfall. Um, and, and so when you don't have that rainfall, these um, Herbicides, some of these herbicides can hang around a lot longer and potentially impact on your next year's crop, whether it be a pulse or um, your, your pasture legumes you're trying to sow. Um, so one of the things that we, we, we think um, might be happening in some of these areas, and, and this is sort of, I guess, um, we've picked up on through some of the lime research, and these are also the soil pH levels. Um, is that when we're surface applying our lime, it has the potential to lift up that pH up into, um, up into that sort of pH area around 7. So in, in your, um, I guess in all your herbicide labels, I'll talk about pH and I'll be talking about water. Um, these are all measurements in calcium chloride, which is usually a lot lower. But you can sort of see um, within that the depth, um, 0 to 5 centimetres at our different trial sites, where we've, where we've got 
put on no line for the starting pH is 4.7. And then in 2017, so that's um, so that line was applied two and a half tonnes in 2014. These measurements taken in 2017, pH has gone up to 5.1. But we can see at some of the sites where the soil buffering capacity wasn't very low, uh, was, was, uh, wasn't very low because it was low sort of organic matter there. In this case, we can keep the pH from 4.5 up to 6.3 calcium chloride. So that's going to mean that that um, would have an effect on that herbicide residue hanging around. Um, some of the other sites, we've also seen that where we've got a good starting pH, 5.3. You know, we're starting to drive it up a bit higher. So it's something that you're going to have to be aware of, just knowing, um, I suppose, making sure you read your lab labels very carefully to know what you might be impacting on and, and knowing the soil profile, how high that pH might be increased to. Just making sure that you get them out of the system before you're trying to sow some of these, um, I guess, um, leggings and, and, and they obviously vary in the, a picture from some of the um, survey work that they picked up on. Um, uh, this is metsulfuron methyl. We often use the ally to get rid of onion grass um, and the pasture. And it was, um, and this is where it wasn't sprayed and this is where they sowed the, um, sprayed the metsulfuron methyl. Um, and what they were commonly seeing was often um, the nodules particularly absent around that top sort of five centimetre area. And that's, uh, that's sort of, I guess they were talking about a band of nodules missing up the top and that's sort of where that herbicide was sort of mainly sitting and affecting nodulation. And in this case, all the plant bacteria were observed. Uh, so sometimes, you know, from their, um, their, from their um, I guess, survey, they found that you know, not everyone was obeying all the plant bacteria, and so we're running into trouble. But in a lot of cases, the plant bacteria were being observed, but they were still um, impacting on uh, legging growth or, or nodulation, I should say. Uh, the last project that I just want to mention um, is about soilborne diseases um, in subclover. So we talk a lot about um, disease. Um, resistance and diseases in really sort of dropped off and we haven't talked about um, diseases in pastures I don't think um, since about the early 1990s um, it's just because I can remember doing a survey in 1993 <laughs> on, um, on um, some of the um, diseases in, in um, and things like that in, in subclover um, so it's sort of it was a project that NLA looked at because these soil-borne diseases are still very much there. They're still causing a lot of root pruning, um, causing damping, damping off of all your seedlings um, and establishment. So we've often wondered, you know, if we've got, you know, sometimes we talk about a good year for subclover, sometimes we talk about bad years, whether they're sort of playing a role um, in that, and it's not just to do with seasons. But this was sort of an interesting work that um, the Central Rangers Grassland Society group did over near um, Kyneton with Lisa Warren. Um, so they sort of did a, 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 a say, sort of a fertiliser fungicide, everything sort of type trial where they just trial different um, techniques just to see um, um, sort of they call it a subtractive um, nutrient, nutrient um, trial. Um, 
which was um, sort of replicated just to see what the pasture would respond to. Because um, they had very good nutrition within the pasture, phosphorus levels were good. Anyway, where they sprayed the, um, the fungicide in a very poor year, in, I think it was about 2014, where they were getting, where it was kind of dry season. Uh, they grew an extra 800 kilograms of um, here. Um, they got much, obviously, they got much better um, subclosure growth where they applied the fungicide. And the reason that we think that um, it, it particularly worked well at this site is that the, the base clover was Mount Barker, which is a very old subclover variety that has, didn't have particularly good disease resistance. Um, and certainly, that disease resistance is perhaps broken down over time. So there is sort of gains to be made by putting on, potentially playing around with um, maybe putting out a strip of fungicide on a um, on some of these older cultivars of subclover that haven't got very good disease resistance. And that's something that we'll probably be trying to do a little bit more work on in the future, is trying to work out which ones have got maybe some finding out which ones have got the disease um, resistance because it has dropped off even with the um, even with the, um, I suppose, the breeding of sub of subclovers, um, it, it hasn't been a focus having disease resistance, but yet we know that these diseases are still out there. So just um, finishing off, this, I guess, the, the, the take-home messages. Um, I think there's some sort of value in spelling, strategically spelling that criminal ryegrass to try and um, enable it to set viable seed. Um, and, and um, improving its persistence. I think there's some gains to be made in that. Um, I think we need to get out there and actually dig out in those paddocks. Um, dig up some plants and make sure that your clovers are, are well nodulated. Um, and you can do that sort of um, you know, 10 to 12 weeks after sowing. And it's usually, they call that the canary, the canary in the mine shaft because if there's if your plants aren't modulated, then it means there's something going on there that you need to investigate why. Um, and I just being aware that soil acidity, um, nutritional factors, and just I guess the last point is just about um, considering the use of uh, fungicide seed treatments or sprays to make sure that the um, 